This is episode 71 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer with a mic, Brian Bemrose. Last show, uh, you may have not noticed this, especially if you decide to drop out as soon as the closing music plays, and I don't blame anyone for doing it, but I attached a segment onto the end after the closing music uh, for a potential new podcast done by my brother, Tony Bemrose. Uh, he does he sort of a five-minute today in history thing. He's done four or five of them, and they're pretty informative. Uh, I dropped it in last week to see, just in case, see if I'd get any comments. Love it, hate it, want to hear more so you can fact-check him and relentlessly troll him. Total number of comments I found, zero. Which, I may assume, means that you all loved it and want it to become a regular podcast. Probably not permanently attached to ATN, that spot is usually reserved for tech rants when they happen. But maybe under its own feed, if people are interested, would subscribe, whatever. If this is something you want to hear, or if you just hate him and want to give him crap, uh, send him a note, bemlet at angrytechnews.com. After listening to last week's Angry Tech News, Ubisoft came back out and called me a liar. They issued a support post that clarified that they will not delete accounts that have purchased games, which was one of the things, if you recall, that I ranted about quite a bit. Uh, the they did the same thing with any account that has an active subscription, which by the way, very nice of them. If your account has been inactive for four years and you still have an uh, active paid subscription, you need to check your damn credit card statement once in a while, but they say they won't delete that. Now, to be clear, when I made that story last week, uh, there was absolutely no indication on any of their support page that they wouldn't delete your account if you were paying them or if you were a paid customer or if you had it games on it. So I stand by my reporting at the time. It's just that they came out and said, oh, no, 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 we don't like the bad PR. And, you know, please don't hate us. We're just, you know, deleting stuff with that. Uh, but anyway, they <clears throat> issued a uh, support post. Yeah that says, uh, among other things, logins from other ecosystems, AKA Steam, also count as logins and that they'll send not one, but three emails over a 30 day period warning you that your account's about to be deleted. Of course, if the first one bounces, what are the chances of the others making it through? I don't think I brought it to this show, but I have recently dealt with my own frustrations over emails not arriving in my inbox on my own SMTP server because the sender didn't follow a basic aspect of the SMTP protocol. Uh, in this case, it was uh, uh, including the sending domain in the headers, but Gmail ignores that particular one. And it seems that nobody cares to follow any open email standards anymore, as long as it works with gmail.com. So I was missing out on mail, but Hey, I'm here to do a tech news show, not rant about Google monopolies. <laughs> From the Ad Environment Integrity Department. Okay, I lied. I'm here to do both. I'm doing a tech news show and I'm ranting about Google Monopolies. Google has invented DRM for the web. 
There is a Google API proposal that uh, was originally posted on April 25th to one Google developer's personal GitHub account. Um, the proposal was sponsored by four Google engineers and put out as, hey, we'd like to hear your thoughts on how to make sure that this proposal works correctly. Apparently, I, I'm not sure exactly how, but it got noticed by somebody on social media last week and the proposal spread like wildfire and everyone who read it lost their damn minds with good reason. But before I decided to get angry over this, I decided to do something that too few people do in preparation for a good old fashioned online knee jerk reaction. I read the proposal. Okay, well, what there was of it. What Google is proposing here is an API to be implemented in browsers called by the website's JavaScript. When that API is called, it will call out to a separate process running on your machine called the attester, which will then return a cryptographic token attesting that the web environment has not been tampered with. And that's pretty much all the details in the spec, but we can glean some intention from their examples. The main example listed is to determine that the browser indeed represents a human user and not a bot. The first use case presented, and I am not making this up, is from the perspective of an advertiser who is paying Google a prime rate for ad impressions and doesn't want their money wasted by serving ads to robots. This case is first because it is very, very, very important to Google. Google can charge a lot more money if they can guarantee that every single ad they serve is viewed by a human who can't opt out, can't block it, and must sit there clockwork orange style and absorb it directly into their brains through their eyeballs. Another use case is for online games who could use this API to confirm that there are no cheating plugins installed in the browser, a problem that has been solved pretty much since the advent of online gaming by running your game logic on the server, by the way, even in an, and even in a fully unpatched Chrome, there's no way to prevent users from opening the F12 menu and modifying client side variables unless Google decides to disable dev tools after implementing this. But you know what? We'll get back to online cheating later. It's an adage as old as the web itself. Do not trust the client that applies to anything you develop on there, whether it be a game or a website or whatever. But in this age of substandard web developers with phoned in diplomas, I guess we've forgotten that the adage and we've forgotten that adage. And now we need to cryptographically force crapware onto the client to make up for our inability to write secure server side code. How the attester works in this scenario is it left entirely unspecified. The only example given is Google play which is a pseudo root service that has more OS permissions than the user and can babysit and watchdog everything that you do on your phone. It can scan your apps for anything illicit. It can scan your picture folders for anything racy. It can limit and control what you're allowed to do with your device. And that's in addition to Google Play's primary job of exfiltrating all of your private data for Google to mine and feed into their advertising machine. Oh, by the way, uh, after reading the spec, my absolute favorite part of the spec is a section you know, it's got, you know, eight main sections or so the one labeled privacy considerations, the entire section and consists of one word to do. This has understandably created some drama on the GitHub repository where it's been posted. Proposers initially posted this as a request for feedback, but they are because they were clearly keen to get people's insights on what was the best way to implement 
this feature? Should the API use this type of callback or should it use that one? Are there any specific performance issues with trying to make these callbacks, etc.? The one bit of feedback that the proposers clearly did not want to hear was don't do this to our internet. Once people started noticing the repo, that was almost all of the feedback. People refusing it to engage in how to implement DRM for the web and instead simply saying, don't do it. Some of the comments got heated as things do online. The shocked and offended proposers, along with their white knights, spilled a lot of GitHub ink about one comment in particular that wished harm on the engineers who wrote the proposal. Outrage ensued, woe is me victimhood, and long diatribes on the part of the Googlers about how people should be more civil. To be clear, wishing death on someone is not cool in a bug report context or frankly anywhere else, no matter how much they're planning on destroying and shitifying the entire global communication infrastructure. But from a practical perspective, anyone who's been on the internet long enough knows that there's going to be one of these assholes in every thread who goes out and jumps straight to physical violence. You just block that person and move on. But when I read the numerous threads from people, one thing became very clear to me. The Googlers had absolutely no intention of entertaining the idea of abandoning this terrible proposal. They were going to do it. And that's that. The feedback they want is the best method to destroy the internet, not whether or not they should do so. Or in the words of Dr. Ian Malcolm, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. One tactic used by disingenuous debaters is that when you have no response to the content of a heated argument, you instead police its tone, show more respect and offer constructive criticism. Sometimes the only constructive criticism is destructive. Don't do this Google. But it's not in Google's nature to listen to the pleadings of one angry podcaster or the rest of everyone else on the internet for that matter. They're going to DRM the web and they can because Google is an advertising company with a de facto monopolies in online ads, search engines, and web browser. They can do whatever the hell they want to ruin the open web and you are going to let them because you keep using Google search. You keep using Gmail. You keep using G drive and Google docs and Google maps and running Google play on your phones and giving them unlimited data on everything you do, everywhere you go, everyone you talk to every program or company you interact with. And you people keep using Chrome. It is hard to get away from the Chromium engine. I'll grant, but the Chrome browser is a thick veneer of Google control stapled on top of the de facto browsing engine for the entire web. Everyone pretty much has to use Chromium these days, which itself is controlled entirely by Google because lazy idiot website authors who know just enough to staple a few custom PNGs onto the latest 60 megabyte JavaScript library to call themselves developers only test things in Chromium. Their sites are hopelessly broken in any other engine because they don't bother testing on non-Chromium engines because so few people use non-Chromium engines. People don't use non-Chromium engines because the sites are all broken. It's a vicious circle. Even Microsoft eventually abandoned their Trident engine for Chromium because they couldn't get site authors to bother to test in anything but Chromium. So for now, it's still possible to use something that isn't Chrome to browse websites, even if it is Chromium. The web for now still theoretically runs on open protocols and anything that implements those protocols will theoretically work. You can get Chromium compatibility with Vivaldi, Epic, Edge, Opera, Brave, Iron, Calibri, Ungoogled, Kiwi, Yandex, Avant, and even that one lone non-Chromium engine browser that still has some market share, Firefox. 
You really have no excuse for running Google's Chrome at this time. Stop it. But if web environment integrity goes into the World Wide Web, that will all change in a hurry. The use case is that is pointedly not included in the WEI proposal is the one that everyone is worried about. It is putting up DRM on the web. Once an API like this becomes available and assuming it works as intended, the site owner can use it to any site owner can use it to enforce only one particular browser for their site, whether that browser be Google Chrome or some insecure piece of crap that they post for you to download. To use a particular site or <clears throat> sites online get to pick and choose which attesters that they trust. And through that, they get to control what software you are or aren't allowed to run on your machine. If you fail the checks, the site simply won't load. To use a particular site, you have to switch browsers, probably to one much less secure, one that sends your browsing history to a big company. They can require you that you browse, you know, they can require you that you browse only while logged into your Google account or logged into your Facebook account or, you know, online games might only launch if they detect that the correct anti-cheating rootkit is installed and running. More on that later. The possibilities are as scary as they are endless. And as a user, your only recourse is to refuse to visit that website, a superhuman feat that most people are unable to even attempt lest they subject themselves to that all-encompassing online anxiety. Fear of missing out. You think this is a fantasy? Think that there's no way websites run by big corporations would ever do something so restricted? It already happens today. With certain banking websites on mobile devices, the site simply won't load in Brave or Vivaldi. It demands that you run Chrome or Safari or you lose access to your money. And the aforementioned Google Play is one of the main ways that these sites validate their software on what was arguably once your device. Google has already made check-ins to the Chromium, the main Chromium repository to include and begin implementing web environment integrity. Proposers insist that it's only for gated opt-in beta features. No big deal, but it is a big deal. A lot of people are online shrieking about the end of the open web, and they're not that far off the mark. The author of the Vivaldi browser had an excellent write-up that I got some of my information from for this story. In that post, he admits that if this proposal becomes a web standard, Vivaldi will most likely implement it. The alternative is making a browser that simply doesn't work with a number of websites, the death knell for such a software project. Google's original model was don't be evil. They abandoned that antiquated idea years ago, probably around the time of their IPO. But lately, Google has started to drop any pretense whatsoever of being benevolent. The company at this point has so much power, a monopoly in so many markets that they don't even pretend to have to pretend that they're doing things for users or the public or the benefit of mankind. They are doing things for Google. The only thing that we, the public, can do to stop them is to stop using their products. And they know that they we won't, that we can't because of almighty FOMO. Google's old model was don't be evil. Google's new model is because we can. And from the fluff department, some gaming news. Activision Blizzard is making waves in gaming news yet again, and not just because of the sometimes on again, sometimes off again Microsoft merger. This first gaming story concerns what is still the most popular Call of Duty game ever released, and arguably the only one ever worth playing. 
Modern Warfare 2, the original 2009 game, not their 2022 re-release trying to recapture the past forgotten glory. I'm personally kind of amazed that this 14-year-old game still has an active online multiplayer scene. I'm not, a, not really amazed that people want to play it. That's kind of a given. It was a great game. Just that Activision hasn't shut down their multiplayer matchmaking servers, rendering players or er, uh, purchase useless in order to force them to buy more recent Call of Duty. It's uncharacteristically benevolent of the company. Well, hackers have recognized this as an opportunity. Last week, reports came out on Steam forums of a worm infecting people's Modern Warfare 2 games sent er, via infected lobbies. The game uses peer-to-peer -peer multiplayer, meaning one player operates as a game host and the rest connect to that person, all of this orchestrated by logging into Activision's matchmaking servers just to make sure they're centralized control. When a client connects to a lobby, the server sends any custom patches, game rules, etc., you know, skins, uh, labels, whatever, to the client. If a client connects to a lobby hosted on an infected person's computer, the client gets infected too. After a while, a large part of the community is infected and all those gaming rigs become part of a very high-performance botnet. On Saturday, Activision took down their matchmaking servers to investigate the problem. And that's pretty much everything we know. You can't play Modern Warfare 2 right now. I guess we'll see how benevolent they really are if the servers ever come back up, or if they use this opportunity to push Call of Duty gamers to any of their dozens of much more modern Warfare games. Next story, Blizzard is taking a hard stance against mods in the latest Diablo 4. I really loved the original Diablo. I played it incessantly in college, although I'm not willing to admit how long ago that was. Then Diablo 2 came out, and it was better in every way. More skills, highly varied but balanced classes, meaningful character progression, varied and immersive environments, and oh, that multiplayer. LAN or peer-to-peer -peer multiplayer, that is. This was before the age where every game had a tightly controlled cloud component. One side effect of single-player and P2P multiplayer is that nobody can complain if you mod the game. And mod Diablo 2, I did. My custom mod pack mostly screwed with skills and stats in the game, making certain enemies more resistant, other enemies weak to certain elements or attacks, strong to other ones, and making the hordes of enemies far more numerous, because hey, my PC could take it. Most importantly, making those ultra, ultra, ultra rare drops a lot less rare. Because who the hell wants to play the same endgame level over and over again for 100 hours just to get a piece of decent legendary gear? I wanted to play the game, not be a slave to it. Then, Diablo 3 came out, where the game is always online, even single player, So because the game engine runs on Blizzard's cloud servers. No more opportunity to modify the data files, no opportunity to inject code to make the game more interesting, aka playable, to suit what you and your friends have as our own ideas for making a game fun. Diablo 3 at least still supported client-side mods. These usually involve things like HUD mods to put more stats on the screen, to make items easier to see on the ground. There were even mods that alter the colors or text on the screen to make the game more accessible to people with vision problems. I can relate, I'm colorblind. Now Diablo 4 is out, and Blizzard is taking a hard line against all mods, client and server, no matter how beneficial they might be, and independent of whether they're being used in single player or multiplayer. The company issued a warning that all game mods will be considered cheating and will earn a permanent account ban if found. The company employs anti-cheating rootkits and has an entire team dedicated to rooting out those evil hackers with HUD overlays and text correction. You will only play the way the game designers demand and no other. In a nutshell, why I have no interest in playing Diablo 4, I guess. I wonder if my Diablo 2 discs are still in storage around here somewhere. 
The third Activision story is also about cheaters, this time in Call of Duty. Call of Duty is big business, especially to the fiercely competitive players who shell out $60 every few months to get on the latest treadmill cookie cutter title with that name. Because the game is popular, it invites people who want to cheat in multiplayer matches using auto-aiming system, wall hacks, x-ray to see through walls, and the like. For all I talk about the ability to mod games, and indeed it is a critical component of keeping interested in a game for me, a sense of fairness demands that I am against mods in open competitive multiplayer games. Mods are great in single player. Mods are great in multiplayer when everyone involved has the same access to them. And ideally when you know everyone involved. The playing field is level, even if that field has one-shot kills and infinite ammo. This is the kind of modded games I play. With my friends. My friends are on board too. But games more and more love to connect random strangers online and pit them against each other's. The people playing legit under the game balance that the developer wants tend to be at a massive disadvantage from the people who've modified their game. And so most games these days have anti-cheating measures, usually some kernel mode watchdog process that scans your game in progress to make sure it's not doing anything the company doesn't want. If it's the web, you might call this process an attestor. Me, I just call it an anti-cheating rootkit. Activision's current anti-cheating system is a program called Ricochet. And as much as I dislike the idea of this kind of software, I have to admit the company has implemented this with quite a bit of pizzazz. Most anti-cheat systems simply disconnect and ban an account when they detect that a user has unapproved mods in their game. Ricochet instead screws with the player. For example, if it detects an invulnerability or bullet dodging cheat, Ricochet will damage the shields of the player, making them a one-hit wonder. If it detects an aimbot, it randomly just removes the player's gun, leaving them only with a knife or melee weapon. One feature punishes X-rayers by creating hallucinations, invisible bots that look like other players but aren't actually there. Anti-cheating systems are polarizing technology. I personally will not play a game that wants to install a rootkit to babysit me on my own PC, but I have got to give the studio credit for masterful trolling in this case. We all know that banning an account is only a temporary measure but a skillfully executed troll can be truly demoralizing. As the last gaming story of the day, not Activision Blizzard related, but still weird and slightly disturbing. In a movie tie-in with a new Ninja Turtles movie coming out this year, I gotta admit, I thought that the Ninja Turtles IP was played out in the 80s or 90s or whenever they were... The very concept was as silly back then as it is now, but I guess it's making someone money. Microsoft is releasing a limited edition Turtles-themed Xbox controller. The controller comes in four styles, one for each turtle, with a drippy green paint job and an image of the turtle on it. But the real gimmick is that the controller comes out of the box smelling faintly of pizza, a favorite food of the Turtles cartoon characters. Which leads me to believe that Microsoft is even more out of touch with gamers than even I suspected. Otherwise, they would have realized that this idea is neither original nor novel. Given enough time on the couch covered in Cheeto dust, every Xbox controller eventually starts smelling of pizza. Angry thanks go out to Brian Janak, Rachel Zimmerman, and Christopher Reamer for their fiat support of Angry Tech News. And to all of the people who sent streaming Satoshis, whoever you are. Life is still pretty hectic and I haven't fixed my node reporting system yet. I have no excuse. So you don't get an excuse, but I do promise to thank everyone I missed when I get it working. Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors, we don't play ads, and we don't charge you to listen. 
but we are funded by your donations. If you received some value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send what you think this episode was worth to you, whether it's $50, $100, or just a non-junk food flavored Xbox controller. That's it for me. I'm Ryan Bemrose, the angry programmer with a mic. I'll be back next time with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the angry programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.